This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as the second most irritating contributor to the New York Times, but watch out, Mike Isaac, I'm coming for you. But in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, I'm delighted to have Andrew Moore on the podcast. He's the dean of Carnegie Mellon's School of Computer Science, which was ranked number one in the world by U.S. News and World Report, and he was previously a vice president of engineering at Google, where he was in charge of Google shopping. Andrew, welcome to Recode Decode. Thanks Happy for coming. Happy to be here. Thank you. So let's talk. I want to I get your background. I have had various computer scientists on the show and we're teaching and just like that. And I love to get sort of the academic perspective, but you've been in the in the fray also. Um, so just let's give your background, where you came from and how you got to Carnegie Mellon. And then we'll talk about what's going on there. I grew up in a seaside town called Bournemouth in the south of England. And there uh, in the late 80s, uh, I really got into creating video games like mm-hmm. a lot of uh, kids at the time. Right. Uh Went, studied uh, computer science at Cambridge University uh, and then did a PhD on this big question of it's so hard to program robots to do stuff Mm -hmm. and we make them learn to do it instead. Right, which has been the biggest challenge, obviously. Yes, and that's when I really fell in love with this question of to what extent can we help machines improve their own performance. Their own performance. All right, we'll talk about that later a little bit more. So you did that, but did you go right to robotics? Where did you go from there? Uh, subsequently, uh, I, I spent some time at the MIT uh, AI lab, mm-hmm. uh, which is super fun, working for Professor Chris Atkinson there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm totally a math statistics guy, whereas mm-hmm. he builds real robots. Mm-hmm. So it was a trial it's by a big fire for me area, yeah. trying to actually build the physical robots. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I still suck at that. So you're not uh, a mechanical engineer. Exactly. That's, right, <laughs> yeah. that's right. I have huge respect for that. But uh-huh. it's the... Uh, it's the stuff to do with making things decide what they're going to do next, which mm-hmm. uh, I'm really interested in. Anyway, subsequently, uh, I joined Carnegie Mellon, really enjoyed sort of helping develop the uh, AI classes there. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, got super into using machine learning not only for robots, but for manufacturing, mm-hmm. uh, because there's so much that you yeah. can do to improve that. I really enjoyed my time there. Started to get interested in other big questions around computer science to do with uh, things like, can you detect near-Earth objects, which potentially are dangerous, mm-hmm. using sort of fancy algorithms? Yeah, or, it's uh, a Nathan Muirold thing, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, can you uh, get an early warning that there's been an airborne disease attack on a city by noticing that the uh, perhaps the uptick in sales of uh, 
uh, medications are following a stripe along the city in the direction of the airflow, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. So that, that's, that was the cool stuff. Right. And that might was, be helpful. Yeah. It is all around this key thing that uh, if you can process a lot of data, mm -hmm. your machines may be able to see stuff that no individual human could see because we can only sort of ingest a certain amount of data. Right, exactly, which is the whole idea behind all this. And so, yes. so you were there at Carnegie Mellon, and then you went to Google. You yes. went to, is that the only job you had? Like, that's not academic, or was it? Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. No, I, I did do a spectacularly unsuccessful startup for a while. Uh -huh. uh, what on, was it? That was on... I love a spectacularly <laughs> unsuccessful startup. They're my favorites. It was machine learning consulting services. Which, uh, early. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We, uh, in the 1990s, we had a flashing neon sign on Craig Street near CMU, which said data mining, data mm -hmm. mining, flashing all the time. Right. We actually never got any walk-in customers, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that the, today wouldn't go over well, yeah. but go ahead. <laughs> what we loved doing there, but we just didn't figure out how to make money at it, was mm -hmm. consulting engagements on applying machine learning in all kinds of places. Just um, early. You're just early, Andrew. That was now the thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So you went over to Google. How did you get to Google? I was really... Uh, impressed by the way that things were scaling so much. And this, I, I, I made the move relatively late. It was in the mid-2000s. And uh, the fact is I was very, very interested in this question of what can you do with uh, billions, or in some cases, more than billions of observations. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what first enticed me. Uh, and uh, so uh, we ended up starting up an office in Pittsburgh, uh, mm -hmm. And it was also important in my mind that Pittsburgh starts to develop its own ecosystem of right. software developers and mm -hmm. research scientists rather than have everyone just migrate to, to Silicon Valley. Yeah. Right. So you worked on shopping. Uh, yes. we The office actually started out doing a lot of work on the machine learning that goes into uh, the advertising systems mm -hmm. uh, at Google. Which is enormous amounts of data. That's, you know. Yes, yes. It, it was really exciting. And we mm -hmm. had this team of statisticians, systems engineers, uh, machine learning folks, algorithms folks. Mm -hmm. And the question is, the only way, uh, and this is still true, the only way advertising survives on a page like Google's homepage is if it's useful and mm -hmm. people find it or want to click on it. Right, exactly. So... Uh, there's many interesting technology problems there involving making sure you're showing relevant stuff for the query, doing everything you can to remove malicious stuff, which may have snuck into the system, detecting that malicious stuff in various ways, uh, and then serving it up in a sort of beautiful, useful way. Mm -hmm. And so people don't realize Google often starts offices in other cities, allows people to stay where they are. You don't have to go to the go to the Borg in, in Silicon Valley, which is in um, Mountain View. Um, but they, they do that so they can avail themselves to universities and things like that. And Pittsburgh, people don't realize it has, and we'll talk a little bit about cars and things like that, had, has become one of the hubs of development and all kinds of really great technologists. That's true. Uh, and in fact, Google was not the first. Intel right. has had a lab right. there for a while. And uh, for instance, uh, Caterpillar is an example of a company which has worked alongside the Robotics Institute for, yeah. for a couple of decades. All right. So you were at Google doing this. And how long were you at Google? Did You were there for many years, if I recall. Eight, eight years. Yeah, yeah. Really, really cool, exciting years. Yeah. And talk about what you did there, shopping especially. Like, what was the concept around shopping? So the interesting thing about when someone is trying to purchase something, mm -hmm. there are different patterns. There are patterns of people who just say, you know, for instance, 
I'm building this cabinet and I need this kind of hinge brace. Mm -hmm. uh, for that, what you want to do is create an experience where the person can as efficiently possible narrow down on what right. that is. Right. There are other experiences where it's not just about the end goal. It is about getting that opportunity to choose among many different objects mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And at that point, the interesting thing is the most value that uh, great companies like Google, Amazon, Microsoft can bring is to help people choose between a bunch of options and present those options to them in a useful way. Right, right. And the correct options. Yes, the exactly. The correct search results, which is much harder than people realize. It is. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, and it's also really painfully obvious. If someone searches for uh, a red party dress and one of the results is a toaster, mm -hmm. even if you've got 49 out of 50 results right, that toaster right. looks really stupid. Right, absolutely. So one of the things, Google did try to get into shopping in a much more significant way and had a lot of stumbles. Uh, you know, with Frugal, do you remember Frugal? They're all, all, were you involved in Frugal? Frugal was actually the state of play when we arrived. Right. Uh, and it's a, it actually was an amazing idea it uh, was. for the time. Great the, name. Yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah. Uh, so this was uh, during a period where the whole internet was learning a lot. Mm -hmm. And one... Well, explain uh, what Frugal is to people. They don't know. It was... Give Fru a, <laughs> Frugal was a initially a cool project which turned out to be very popular when mm -hmm. it was uh, sort of displayed on labs. Mm -hmm. And it was this question of, uh, okay, I'm going to break this down uh, in the way that I was thinking as an engineer. Uh, traditionally, a web search engine, a good worth web search engine worth its salt, would look at a query that a user had typed in, a few words, mm -hmm. and would then run through and match it against millions and eventually billions of documents. To, and it scored every single document as to how well it matched the query. Right. Uh, and then it would show sort of results sort of summarizing those documents. The brilliant idea about Frugal was that it was going to do more work beforehand than merely uh, sort of capturing the documents and storing an index for them. Mm -hmm. It was going to understand the components of the pages so that it could quickly see that although this this might be a page which is talking about uh, vineyards in Italy, it's also got explicit mentions of these five types of grape. Mm -hmm. And so it can then use this, this page is actually about this type of grape right. semantically, rather than simply looking for string matches, if you like. Right. And so you got there and one, obviously at the time, Amazon was starting to come on, and it, which has outdone Google in the shopping area. Talk about why Google thought that was important. Obviously, search was his most important thing, but it moved off into lots of different branches. Um, shopping would be an obvious one for them. Yeah, well, I I can't speak for Google the corporation because mm -hmm. uh, it never was and never will be, in my opinion, a sort of a big, uh, a, a sort of very much a command and control center. Mm -hmm. It was, but for me personally, the thing I was seeing was... As time goes on, people don't want to simply use web search to right. get hold of documents, mm -hmm. uh, which happened to mention. They want to use web search to do stuff. Do stuff, absolutely, so which Google a, realized. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so it's about getting verbs, if you like, into mm -hmm. the queries. It's a really great way of putting it. And rather than just sort of pieces of information. I want to. Yes, that's Give right. me. Yes. I'd like to buy. Yes. That kind of exactly. stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And then be the 
seller, I guess. Yes. Google never really wanted to be the full seller the way Amazon did, which I think is probably Amazon's power. That was the big difference, right. uh, and it still is. It's it's two different businesses. One is to sort of uh, try to help make sure that you are aggregating information from uh, millions of, of different retailers yeah. so that users don't have to individually go visit all those retailers' web pages but can still search over them. Mm -hmm. Whereas Amazon's model, which was you know, has been amazingly professional and successful, uh, was to actually be doing the uh, the logistics and transportation and shipping themselves. Right, right. And so you work there. And what do you, what do you think you accomplished in shopping? Because it's gone through so many different iterations at Google. It continues to, to shift around um, and where it is. And they've tried to, what they've tried to do now, and you're not there, is um, position themselves as the alternate to Amazon. You know, that's their sale to the big retailers because Amazon's now in in competition with a lot of retailers. And in fact, in heavy competition with them. And now they own retailers. Whereas they're going to be buying even more stuff. Like, it just goes on and on. I have not really been involved right. since, since I left Google. Mm -hmm. But the during the time at Google, we one of the things that really drove us was this question of what can we do for, uh, like, regular retailers. Right. And many people had direct or indirect friends who are running small retail businesses. Right. And were very concerned about how they can make sure that they're what they're doing is visible. Right. So a lot of it's amazing that people didn't see Amazon sneak up on them. I was like, they were behind your back. <laughs> Whoa! I remember yes. thinking to retail, like, oh, they're our friend. I'm like, they're not your friend. Yes, and this they're not your friend. My my understanding is that throughout many of the larger retail companies, this this has been a big looming thing, mm -hmm. and different retailers have moved at different speeds mm -hmm. with saying, look. Uh, We've got to seriously invest in our cloud and online offering. Mm -hmm. And for many retailers, there has been this question, well, maybe we shouldn't do that. Perhaps our whole strategy should be about mm -hmm. walk-ins and people having experience doing the physical shopping. Right. So this question of what to do has, during a disruptive period in shopping has been sort of raging yeah. among huge yeah. numbers of people. Yeah, it's really interesting with where we are now, of course, because, I, I, again, as I said, I used to say, the call's coming from inside the house, retailers. <laughs> you are just like, you're yes, going to die exactly. if you don't be careful. So you left, then you left Google to do go back to academia. I did. Yeah, and uh, why did you do that? Because a lot of people like to stay in the fray, and obviously a lot of academics also spend a lot of time in the fray. Yes, it was, it was fascinating. Uh, what I noticed going on in the world of academia was uh, its really centrally important role for the economy and for the mm -hmm. future. The One of the biggest trends going on among the tech companies in what's going to keep them alive mm -hmm. is how much strong software and machine learning, AI expertise they can get hold of. Mm -hmm. And that was turning out to be the limiting factor. Mm -hmm. That limiting factor is actually super serious. The reason it's so serious is the folks with these skills, if there's not enough of them, mm -hmm. they will tend to flock to the places which are most sort of welcoming and set to take them. Right. So when you've got a huge undersupply of AI experts in the United States, right. uh, those that do remain are going to be fought over by very deep-pocketed, mm -hmm. uh, strong uh, internet companies right. uh, who are providing uh, important services. But suddenly you start to see other organizations, like even things like NASA or mm -hmm. Veterans Administration or construction companies, all these other things Everybody. which absolutely need right this. now need to bring in mm -hmm. uh, advanced technology, 
really just being blocks because they can't find anyone. They can't, yeah. So uh, my concern started to be that uh, the biggest problem or need in the future is going to be where do you get this, this supply of computer sciences from? This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We're here with Andrew Moore. He's the dean of Carnegie Mellon's School of Computer Science. So you went there because there, there is this, it's, it's almost a crisis, really, in terms of like Google, it's essentially Google and Facebook sucking up and others sucking up all the talent. And we'll get into the diversity of the talent in a minute. But um, so you went there. Talk about what Carnegie Mellon's doing. Um, most people think of Stanford and some other schools in California, uh, Polytech and stuff like that. Talk about how you look at computer education now and and. And we'll get into the diversity issue in a minute, but how do you look at where we are as a country? Because I just recently interviewed Mark Zuckerberg, and he talked about the problem. China, obviously, the worrisome nature of what's going on in China is that there's so many people, they're just pushing out AI experts everywhere. Um, sort of look at the state of, of where we are with graduates in computer science. So they are still heavily in demand. <laughs> so when I look at the whole map of what's needed, there are two distinct populations of folks we need to train up. Mm -hmm. They're both equally important, but they are different. Okay. Number one, the people who can take existing technology, uh, the, the, the great systems like uh, TensorFlow or AWS web services or all these things, integrate them together to make new products. Right. There's the second group, which are who are the people who are going to be designing the new things which eventually replace those current Right. Systems. So mm -hmm. there's the folks building the technology that the next 20 years will be based on, and then there's those taking the existing technology. Mm -hmm. So a place, the, the great computer science places, MIT, Stanford, Georgia Tech, Berkeley, CMU, uh, their main responsibility, I believe, is to produce that second type, the people who are going to be building what's next. Mm -hmm. uh, there is, however, a serious need for both types of developers. And again, there's no, I'm not saying one is stronger or more important than the other. It's absolutely pointless having folks invent new algorithms if there aren't people to take them and actually look at how to change the world with them. Mm -hmm. Similarly, uh, someone on the planet should be figuring out how to make software more energy efficient, more able to uh, prevent disasters in each of these things. So two groups, Carnegie Mellon School of Computer Science focuses Rightly or wrongly, and I think rightly, 
on the second group, right. the, the folks designing the next generation of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for that, uh, we still have a dangerous undersupply. Mm-hmm. Uh, say, what do you mean by dangerous? I agree with you, but explain to people who don't understand the crisis we're in. Okay, yeah, and in fact, I wouldn't call it... It's a crisis. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's a crisis. It's, yes. It will be. I think it is a, uh, like a potentially an economic opportunity lost. Right. So, well, that too, obviously. Yeah. So the one thing I, I'm observing in my current role, which I'm really enjoying, is there is such a difference in the technology levels of different organizations. Mm-hmm. There are people, um, companies that... Uh, you know, doing a fantastic business, but their infrastructure is based on 1990s mm-hmm. technology, right. others early 2000s, and others 2010s. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2010s are where you often see uh, parts of a business able to take in sensory data, like, for instance, watching to see if anyone's tripped and fell in a factory mm-hmm. so that you can quickly get uh, help to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, where it involves like real computer vision and pretty advanced right. engineering. Uh, other folks definitely won't have anything like that. They may have extra people walking around to try to tra- detect that kind of thing. Uh, but it's going to be a long time for them to tool up on it. And the advice, if some, if a company wants to move ahead with something like that, is uh, you have to have some internal expertise. Even when you hire consultants uh, from the big consulting companies to come in and help you implement them, you have to have some internal expertise. Right. And so when you're thinking about what you're doing, as, as, let's sort of as opposed to the other schools, how do you, you, you have a certain focus. How do you differentiate yourself then and how do you attract people into the area? Yes, all the big schools do have slightly different characters. Yes, they do. And, and, and I'm... I'm I do think we're different. Okay. I'm not going to say that we're awesomely better in all you ways. You can do that yeah. if you want. Okay. Yeah. Uh, my British upbringing would never allow me all to right. do that. All right, okay. So you're not so, going to like rag on Stanford yeah, for me. Exactly. Yeah. Stanford right. is awesome. Okay. What made me particularly love Carnegie Mellon and sort of ally myself with it mm-hmm. is it really thinks of the goals of its faculty and students to be around impact. Mm-hmm. Famously, one of my predecessors, Jeanette Wing, uh, who was head of computer science uh, at at CMU, in a famous faculty promotions meeting, listened to some folks comparing bibliometric statistics about, mm-hmm. well, this person's had this number of conference publications sure. and this number of oral reports. And she stood up and she said, we don't care about those numbers. Mm-hmm. Look at what this person has done. Their technology has brought, and I, I don't remember the instance specifically, mm-hmm. but it has Impact. brought a change in the way that a certain part of society operates. Right, right. And we've always had that uh, kind of focus. And it's, right. I mean, it's my personal belief, and I think it is the, the general thing which unites us at CMU, that you actually get the best science by focusing on impact. Mm-hmm. The field of computer science is so rich. There's so much to explore, which mm-hmm. is completely unexplored at the moment, that... Uh, it is very easy to get lost in all the things you can do, but having right. a guiding light right. Uh, right. that that helps pull you to develop the things which are actually going to help society. Do you have a do you have a, a lack of people coming into the system? Is it hard? You, you obviously it's one of the top programs, so you're not going to have it. But when you look around, are there fewer people in this country going into that? 
Is that a problem or there's not enough schools or what do you imagine to be the problem? Because everyone talks about these pipeline issues constantly. Yes. How do you look at that? So there is somewhat of a pipeline generally, mm-hmm. problem generally. Uh, one of the things that we're all super concerned about and taking action on is specifically the pipeline for women mm-hmm. and underrepresented yes. minorities yes. is weaker than the rest of the pipeline. So what is your assessment of that? I bang on that drum all the time. Yep. But, I, but, you know, it's often used as an excuse sometimes. I think it's real in part. But at the same time, I don't think companies put it as number one priority. It's number 14, which means it's number 14. Um, it's not not in there. It's just not they have other things they're worried about. Um, so how do you look at that problem and what to do about it? So... I've learned a lot while I've been at Carnegie Mellon, and uh, it's kind of humbling. So when I arrived, I was uh, of a very traditional mindset, which I'm embarrassed about now, which is, yes, it's a huge pipeline problem. I should do everything I can to encourage and help the people earlier in the pipeline mm-hmm. sort of increase their part of it so that I can then absorb what they produce. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the thing I've learned is that's not the case. All of us in education and in early career management are part of that pipeline. Right. Uh, so uh, specifically, it's so easy to see ways that you're going to lose uh, women or underrepresented minorities who've made it all the way through high school if mm-hmm. you're not giving them a, uh, a a positive environment and one where mm-hmm. they feel appreciated and, and a part of an overall organization. Right. right. And then even further than that, if you're saying, have a great time at university, but when you're out in the real world, you're still going to suffer from mm-hmm. uh, yes, problems of unconscious bias and so forth, then right. it's hard to retain them through the program. Right. That's what the interesting part. Everyone was focusing so much on recruiting, which I think you need to do. But once people get there, wherever it is, that's where things seem to, the wheels seem to fall off the car, as far as I can tell, is that there's no management track. It's not managed differently. It's not it's not imagining that people have different needs in the way they've been managing people. But it's all kinds of things, but it's keeping people there, which is always, and, and seeing a track towards promotion. That's within the companies. Um, how do you change the university? I know at Harvey Mudd, they've tried different things. They've identified issues, social issues, um, the way they're right, doing classes, the way they're conducting classes. What are you doing? What is your... So different, there's a suite of things that you have to be doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let me run through some of them. The first okay. one is to be really, uh, really just welcoming and thorough when you're looking at the match of individuals to the university. Mm-hmm. Uh, this approach, which was pioneered over the last two decades by uh, CMU professors such as uh, 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 Professor Margolis and uh, Lenore Blum, uh, have really helped make sure that we're not inadvertently dropping excellent students uh, mm-hmm. who may maybe don't yeah. come from aren't your traditional cis mm-hmm. white male. Mm-hmm. Uh, that has been spectacularly successful. Uh, we have seen not only are we now at fifty percent women uh, coming into the program, mm-hmm. but the retention through the program is indistinguishable between men and women. Mm-hmm. The final results in the program are indistinguishable, and so this. Maybe if there had been some concern 10 or 20 years ago that somehow that there would be something else would get broken. uh, And even admitting lots of students, you'd see a big drop off later on. Uh, That that hypothesis seems to have failed. And what's the change that you think is most important of those changes? Uh, It really helps to be clear about something which we're lucky. Carnegie Mellon already believed that it's about 
impact. Mm -hmm. And the real job of a computer scientist is to be thinking that thing's a problem. Right. What can we do about it? And how can technology and social systems help? Mm -hmm. That's my definition of a computer scientist. Right, it's, right, it's, which is more attractive to women, solving. actually. That's been shown, like, the, the goal-oriented. There may be some correlation yeah, there. there is, but it's, it's I think it's important. There's been for, studies. I don't yeah, know if it's... Yeah. Uh, so I think that that is something which, because we talk the talk on that, we don't simply walk the walk, mm -hmm. uh, that can really help. So where do you imagine, when you're thinking about China and other countries, I'm using China just as the proxy, but it's pretty much the most yes. challenging um, country compared to the U.S. The U.S. has led the way in computer science. It's led the way in creation of Internet companies. It's led the way in creation of billionaires and, and et cetera, et cetera, and startups. How do you look at the situation now? Do you see it as a competition with them, or do you? Because only because Mark did, Mark Zuckerberg brought this up in a podcast, he's like, "It's you know what they're doing in China. You shouldn't be hindering me because look at China." And I, sort of this me or G kind of yeah. thing is not really what I not the choice I want to yes. have. But how do you look at? But I do think he's absolutely correct in that that country really is all cylinders on educating, uh, creating legions of of computer scientists. Yes. So uh, the American experience in science and technology in the last 50 years has been very successful. Mm -hmm. It has maintained and really earned the status as the place in the world that you want to come. Right. Uh, and that has meant that you can think of places like MIT and Stanford and CMU as the mm -hmm. Starfleet Academy of Computer Science. Yes, they are. So, <laughs> I knew we had to get a Star <laughs> yes, Trek exactly. reference. Wait, are so, you a Star Wars or a Star Trek person? Star Trek, right? Definitely Star yeah, Trek. Yeah, of course. Yeah, because yes. yeah, Star Wars is depressing. But yes. go ahead, move along. So that strategy, which worked so well in the development of aerospace technology and the mm -hmm. initial development of computation and a more recent development of the really important uh, principles like multi-threading, multi-processor, mm -hmm. multi-core uh, and computer vision and things, uh, that has worked very well. And I, that aspect where the United States really kind of gets and maintains an unfair advantage really, by truly. making sure that it gets hold of mm -hmm. the best people right. uh, does work or has worked in our interest for, mm -hmm. for a long time. Right. And you can tell by my accent, or I actually mm -hmm. revealed this at the start, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I You're not from here. here. Yeah. You're not from these right. parts. I, I totally, you have a funny accent. Exactly. As my relatives in West Virginia would say, you talk <laughs> funny. Yeah, I talk funny. Uh, but it would never have occurred to me growing up that I wanted to be anywhere other than United States. Right. I, I, I wasn't sure whether I would qualify to get in, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, it, it was the central point. Right. And that still stands despite everything. Mm -hmm. I think that around the world... Uh, when, once people are thinking primarily about the science and what new technologies they're going to develop, they want to be part of this in this place. country. Yes, and, and but 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 do the uh, but part. We we uh, the numbers still mean that there's huge numbers of folks who uh, will stay where they 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 came from, and because China has had uh, sort of strong improvements in its educational system and living means, standards. Yes, that means it has got a very large group of folks who are creative and trying to 
do similar things without being in the United States. Right, right. Not the copying yes. community more. They're now creative and doing their own, which is really fascinating. People are yes. like, oh, China copies and like, not so much anymore. Like, I think that's an old trope. Yes, I agree. Um, and it's and, and it, it's a different set of values, too. Yes. The government is quite involved. You yes. know, every government's going to put its his sticky fingers in technology, no matter what you do. But in that case, it's quite a, it's, it's a very different value system. Yes. So at that point, if you consider things to be a numbers game, mm -hmm. we're doomed. Mm -hmm. I don't think it is just a numbers game. Right. Uh, if, on the other hand, we maintain this role as the place that the very top folks want to come to, uh, then uh, I think that will make sure that, uh, this is me speaking in my words, not for anyone else, the biggest advances in technology happen in a liberal Western society yep. with sort of democratic, transparent values. Um, you did mention, you know, by numbers, we're doomed in terms of graduating people. And of course, jobs are very important in this country. How do you look at the current state of you know, sort of the anti-immigration stance of this administration, the not so lovely science? They don't love science as much as perhaps they should. Does that have an impact or is it just a short term until sanity is rich, science sanity is returned? I think it's short term, and I haven't seen uh, any craziness. Though, of course, I'm I'm, I'm frightened it'll happen on this question mm -hmm. of getting really the strongest folks over. over but here. if we appear to have a society which doesn't welcome uh, folks from elsewhere, then of course, any sane, brilliant scientist will end up going to Canada or Singapore or Zurich because mm -hmm. they'll they'll be able to get the best of both worlds. Sure. So that is a concern. It's about perception. And once you're like living in an academic community or in a uh, software development office for an exciting company, usually day-to-day -day interactions, this, this doesn't come up. You're so right. focused on some particular sure. mission. Right. Uh, but that perception, especially among someone who's maybe 16 or 17 in uh, yeah, anywhere from Turkey to China to uh, England, mm -hmm. uh, is something I'm concerned about. Numerically, uh, schools like Carnegie Mellon's School of Computer Science, the very strong technology schools, we have not seen this impacting the interest in folks coming into our programs. Mm -hmm. And every year we are having to accept a smaller and smaller fraction of our sure. applicants because there are so many applicants. Yeah, they're only expecting uh, uh, letting two people into Stanford this year out of one million. <laughs> Sometimes, <laughs> like, like, yeah. Sometimes it feels that way. Yeah. No, uh, it is that way. It is that way. So that's going on okay for us. Right. There are other, other disciplines, mm -hmm. uh, things like law and business, mm -hmm. are suffering somewhat. Right. And uh, university, like the broader set of universities mm -hmm. in the United States, who are also really important to our economony, mm -hmm. maybe not top five, but, also but important top to tech. 100. Yeah, there needs to be all exactly. kinds of people. Those folks are starting to see drop-offs. So right. I think that is a leading indicator of a problem. Especially when tech is so immigrant yes. focused, you yeah. know, in terms of, of who who has come here. You can name, you can just one, one after the other. There's someone who's come from somewhere else. Yes. Now, one, I do think that to some extent, we in academia have brought this upon ourselves because, for the following reason. All right. As funding in computer science has remained relatively flat mm -hmm. over the last uh, you know, 10 or 15 years, and by the way, I should mention that this administration is actually very positive towards computer science funding. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, OSTP, Office of Science and Technology Policy, is really 
in its list of priorities for the country. Mm -hmm. uh, most of them are around computer science. Right. But, so I, It'd be I'm nice not, if we had a CTO, but go ahead, or, yeah, or the I, head of that yeah. office, but okay. I, so not whining uh, right. about that aspect, but it has stayed flat while right. the number of computer science professors has needed to grow. Right. And so there is less grant funding to go around. Right. So a... Uh, a starving dean or department head looks around and says, where can I get revenue? Mm -hmm. And master's programs, mm -hmm. uh, mainly based on bringing in relatively wealthy students from Southeast Asia, mm -hmm. has been a huge money boom. Sure, they can pay. Yes. And I think, again, in the top schools, the value that those students get uh, it's paid off in a few years of working in their industry, whether they stay in mm -hmm. the United States or go home. So it's still a positive value pro proposition, but it's pretty expensive. And so we academics shake our heads and say, oh, it's too bad that most of our master's programs seem to be filled with international students. We need to increase the number of domestic students. Mm -hmm. The cost is... But the, re the reality is, yeah, the cost of these programs is high and departments who have got sort of addicted to the money in the yeah, face of defaming research revenue. Yeah. Uh, they, they can they sell need the seats. That. Yeah, they so, need So there are many creative things that can be done to reduce the cost of these kinds of uh, mm -hmm. pieces of education. Uh, Georgia Tech's mostly online system is an example sure. of that. I think that's a place where academia has to go now is to actually value engineer its expensive master's programs creatively so that people can afford domestically right, to absolutely. take them. 100% because you get you have all this demand who people who can pay and that's where you head. Yes. So I want to finish up talking about the concept of where the big trends in academics are going around computing. What do you see as important? You obviously robotics and uh, we're missing saying that Carnegie Mellon was a big player in Uber's Uber a lot of self-driving cars, a lot of robotics, a lot of things like that. That had a sort of a rocky tenure yes. with Let's blame Uber for that. Um, but talk a little bit about where it's going at Carnegie Mellon and where overall you see the most important areas of computing going. So the huge change, of course, we've all seen in the last 10 years has been machine learning mm -hmm. and, and the, the real right. push on these convolutional neural networks, which right. turn out to be able to solve problems that we hadn't been able to right. solve using more statistical You know, they're calling the it past. super AI in Silicon Valley now. Whatever. Uh, it's if, a new marketing term. We're on the ra radio, but if <laughs> uh, if we weren't on the radio, you would have seen me eye-rolling. Yes, <laughs> there was eye-rolling. I know. They have all kinds of names for it. <laughs> Go ahead. Just marketing. So, I don't mind. Yeah. So here's, here's the important thing. That machine learning component fits in a slot of all the technologies you need to build an AI system. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we've really been pushing on, both in our development of education and in our recruiting of faculty are the other slots adjacent to machine learning. Right. And, uh, so an important one, which I usually would draw before machine learning, because machine learning depends on it, is all the sense work, sensing work mm -hmm. that's necessary to be able to understand the world. Right. So Sensors a, are, that, that's an astonishing area, but go ahead. Exactly. Right. So if you're using robots to fight a fire, they mm -hmm. absolutely need to understand what's really going on in a building. Mm -hmm. And so creating devices and robots which can actually understand what's happening right now mm -hmm. is, I think, probably yeah, if I only had one mm -hmm. research topic that I could work on, I would regard that as much absolutely. more important than improving the algorithms which are going to take that sensory data. There, so, you know, it's going to be amazing when they figure out. I was talking to someone, one of these future. I like to talk to futurists, and they were like, at some point, and I think it's actually being created... 
you know, say there's a nuclear spill or, so, or the chemical spill yeah. or something like that, that they would have sensors that were small as like grains of sand and they'd throw them on, like from far away, they'd spray them onto something. And these sensors would pull in the information of what spilled and what to do about it. And it was, I love the concept of it. Like, I'm, I'm sure it's not uh, possible at this point, but it, it, that's the idea. Yeah. It's like, it's, they're so, sand is the way I looked at yes. it. Like, they're so pervasive. They're almost like in the air without knowing they're there. Yes, I, and I do think we're moving in that direction. Mm-hmm. It actually totally makes you're, you're totally making this point. Uh, the the idea of just trying to really focus on machine learning without being able right. to get hold of the data, the data is a killer. Right. Uh, one really important part of that turns out to be power mm-hmm. and How actually power having it so that a sensor, which is tiny, is processing high definition video. Uh, you can't have it sitting next to a big GPU of the kind right. that they're now putting in cars because right. uh, that would be all the weight for a mobile platform and so forth. Right. So for me, AI, mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff that we, mathematicians like me, are doing in the middle of it will mm-hmm. be stalled without that huge growth of work in the Which cheap, power, low power sensing thing. Lower power, and, and sensing everywhere, going out to space, yes. going out inside of people. I mean, I know, remember that movie where they've traveled inside a human being. I'm like, they're going to have sensors all over human beings at some point. If we can deal with these things. So a a very interesting aspect of that is, in my opinion, uh, electrical and computer engineering departments, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which to some extent have had to watch computer science getting all the glory. Right. They're totally coming back as the most important things. Like, oh, man. No, no, we're we're friends, but still. They're sitting there with wrenches going, what the hell? We used to be cool. Yeah, if you look at the media, it's like machine learning this and uh, intelligent agents that. Right. Whereas... Now, us AI people are going back with our hats in the hands to the electrical computer engineering. This happens at Carnegie Mellon. It's Mm -hmm. folks in the ECE primarily who are helping us solve this sense of need. So that's that's one end. There's another end above machine learning. Mm -hmm. If you've got something which can spot patterns or notice that your elbow Mm -hmm. is in -hmm. in an image and stuff like that, you're still going to want to put it in a system which makes decisions. Right. And... Uh, that really is was the original dream of artificial intelligence at the Dartmouth conference is mm-hmm. things which can observe, think about what they observed, and then act. Right. Uh, and so making that action decision mm-hmm. uh, is really important. Right. Uh, and it goes in two ways. One of them is a little bit like what we were talking about with Google in the early days of this mm-hmm. is a human has to make a decision and there's much too much information around for them to actually... Uh, really be able to just look at all the source information themselves, mm-hmm. how can you support that? And that goes from everyone doing stock trading to helping decide if a medical claim is legitimate through to uh, you know, people. Uh, one, one of our professors, for instance, is intr- instrumenting classrooms so that teachers can notice if they've accidentally got some unconscious bias, which means that they're not attending to certain kinds of students and so forth. So that's great. That is human assistance. Mm -hmm. Uh, In my opinion, many folks in the artificial industry, intelligence industry, and by the way, I'm a minority here, so Mm -hmm. I'm not speaking for the whole Mm -hmm. whole discipline, Mm -hmm. are focusing on that because it's so much more palatable and less scary than the other thing at the top of the stack, which is autonomy. Right. Uh, And... Uh, meaning Terminator. Not meaning Terminator. I but know. Of course, everyone, ever, ever, everyone I know. rightly thinks they about this. They don't care about us. Robots don't care about us. 
Uh, indeed, they're, they're toasters. Yeah. They're, it's... Or we're toasters. One or the other. They don't <laughs> care. Right. We don't. They don't care. You know, oddly, I had a, did an interview with Elon Musk many years ago. I thought he was quite intelligent. He goes, they're going to think of us like house cats. Like, why do they want to kill us? It's kind of useless to want to kill us. Like, it was really, in- I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. We're so, we're so obsessed with ourselves. Until we're into science fiction, futurist like territory. Us. Yeah. The reason they don't care about us is they're not thinking about us. They are right. they are simply machines. Yes. Every, every robot or so, computer that you can see is just a set of right. equations. We, we only have just a few minutes, just two more minutes. I just love to know wh- where self-driving is because that's where community. You were all involved. Lots of people left Carnegie Mellon. They set up different shops. Where do you see that right now? Self-driving autonomous vehicles. This is me speaking yes. for myself. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so my personal uh, understanding is. Uh, that every year now in the major self-driving experiments, the metric of success to track is what fraction of the time do you need a safety driver? Mm-hmm. In other words, yeah. what fraction do you, of the time does the human need to take over control? And if we were shooting for the early 2020s, for us to be at the point where you could launch mm-hmm. autonomous driving, you'd need to see every year at the moment more than a 60% reduction mm-hmm. every year right. to get us down to 99.9999% right. Uh, right. safety. I don't believe that things are progressing anywhere near that fast. Right. It's an engineering task where chipping away 20% this year, 4% next year, uh, and so there's a whole set of problems. And it's a combination of these around sensors, AI, all kinds of things yeah. all working together. Yes. Again, I'm not in the, in the thick of this, mm-hmm. and of course I don't know what's going on in the proprietary world, mm-hmm. but I imagine, based on what I've seen, that these questions as to what to do about a human who's on a curb, mm-hmm. potentially looking like they might lose their balance, mm-hmm. really making a decision about that, yeah. that's not something you're going to solve in two months. It's it's probably part of a three-year sub-project. Right. And then you look at the other cases like They're that. all over the place. Yep. Every set of shadows has got so many, from trees, has got so many dots and things that mm-hmm. uh, there is a chance that something's going to suddenly emerge, which looks like yeah. an animal. So humans still have a chance for a yeah. short time. Um, very last question. What's the craziest thing you'd like to work? If you could pick up any tech topic, besides the, the ones that are sort of real, um, what would you like to see? This is going to sound terrifying, All right. but I still want to say it. I would like it if I was talking to my machine mm-hmm. every night before I went to bed, and it actually asked me, Andrew, was today a good day? Oh. And at the end of every year, it asked me, Andrew, was today a good year? Mm-hmm. And we actually started to use data mm-hmm. uh, and activities to help understand some of these sort of meaningful aspects of our lives. Are you actually spending enough time with your kids? Mm -hmm. Uh, Are you doing your socializing in such a way that you seem to actually be getting value from it? Right. So I know it's crazy, but I Mm. do think that this kind of uh, (laughs) uh, observing of us uh, is going to help. Yeah. Maybe a private drone will do that for you, like sitting behind your head. Oh, move along. It'll buzz you if you're not if you're on your computer too much. I, I, I think they should electrify phones and they just start to like, ow, you can't, you cannot pick it up. That like, I have all kinds of ideas about how to do that. It's possible. Again, if we're talking crazy, my guess will be the computer will be in one of our teeth. Yeah, I agree. All right. Yeah. We'll end on that. Andrew, it's great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. 
you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also find more episodes on Recode Decode on Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you didn't like the interview, just leave us alone or just want to say hi, tweet at me. I'm at Kara Swisher on Twitter. Now that you're done with this, go and check out the latest episode of Recode Media. You can find that show wherever you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. And thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then.